Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. This is Josh Popachak, the publisher of Sock and Source and the host of No Rain Date with our weekly news roundup for the week ending November 12th, 2021. And I want to start off by sending a very special shout out to my sister, Sylvia, who is celebrating her 40th birthday today. Happy birthday, Sylvia. And in the news world, we are coming to you from a different location this week than our regular podcast recording studio. We are inside the studio at Venture X in South Bethlehem. Venture X is a co-working space that opened in 2020. If you're not familiar with co-working, it's a type of a relatively new type of office concept that allows for different tiers of workspace within a single facility. So here at Venturex, you can have everything from a shared desk space, which is what we have now as part of our Sock and Source satellite office package, all the way up to a private office for an entire team of people. So it's a more customizable work experience when you enter into an agreement with someplace like Venturex, because you can always upgrade as your business grows. And of course, They want to see that happen. Terry Wallace is the owner of this location. And if you are interested in learning more, he would be more than happy to give you a tour. Of course, there's a Ventrex website, which has tons of information on it. It's a beautiful office space, class A, probably class AAAA, in an almost brand new building called the Gateway at Greenway Park, which if you live in the Bethlehem area, you've probably noticed It's the large building at the south end of the New Street Bridge, and there's a rooftop restaurant called Zest. There's a big sign for that on the side of the building. Venturex is on the first two floors of the building, and there are a number of other businesses inside, including other eateries. It's in a very up-and-coming part of the south side. The south side arts district is close by, and of course, the Greenway, which is part of the building's name, is the green belt, if you will, pathway that snakes its way through South Bethlehem that goes right by the building. There are tons of restaurants and retail shops around the corner. Lehigh University is right up the street. So it's an exciting place to be. And we're happy to be here because we're planning to cover um, more of South Bethlehem news in the future. And of course, we ask for your support as we continue to do that. You can find more information about our plans and this announcement on sockandsource.com. And of course, if you have news tips or ideas for stories related to South Bethlehem or the Saucon Valley, Southern Lehigh, Upper Bucks areas, feel free to give me a shout. You can email me at josh at sockandsource.com. Getting back to the news headlines for this week. Of course, we celebrated the Veterans Day holiday on Thursday, and I want to wish a happy Veterans Day to all our veteran listeners. We were privileged to cover a couple different events related to Veterans Day this year. The Hellertown American Legion held its traditional 
service for Veterans Day in Hellertown Union Cemetery on Thursday, and that was well attended. It's a very nice service. We have photos from that by Chris Christian, Andrew Hughes, who's a Hellertown Borough Councilman, and a U.S. Marine Corps veteran gave the remarks at that service, and many other local veterans were recognized during the service, thanked for their service. We thank them as well. On Wednesday, we were invited to cover a ceremony honoring a female World War II veteran, and you don't get to encounter too many of those, especially today. The number of World War II veterans has dwindled to under 250,000, and that's out of 16 million Americans who served during World War II. I had to do the math on that one, but that works out to be less than one and a half percent of World War II veterans are still alive. And so if you're talking about female veterans of World War II, you're probably talking in the thousands, you know, probably under 10,000, because they only made up about one or two percent of those who served during World War II. Of course, at that time, it wasn't common for women to enter military service. But the woman who was honored broke those barriers uh, way back when, nearly 80 years ago. Her name is Alma Davis, and she lives in Coopersburg. I personally know her daughter, Stephanie. One time, we worked together many years ago, and she told me that a special service had been arranged in honor of her mother's 97th birthday, which was actually November 9th, so just before Veterans Day. And they had it outside her housing facility at the flagpole. They had a flag raising in her honor and various representatives from local organizations like the American Legion in Quakertown, the VFW in Sellersville, and others were there to wish her well and read some proclamations. She was presented with a flag that had flown over the U.S. Capitol in honor of her service. And I should mention that she was a WAVE. A WAVE was a female member of the U.S. Naval Reserve, so she is a Navy veteran. The WAVES primarily served stateside, and the program was created so that more of the male naval officers could serve overseas. They were needed on the ships, but if they were needed on the ships, who was going to take care of all their duties back here? That was where the WAVES came in. And she was a member for several years. They had a beautiful display of uh, photographs of her, memorabilia from her time in the WAVES. I understand that her uniform is in Washington, D.C. at the Women in Military Service for America Museum. I had, I had not heard of that museum before, but it sounds like a great place to learn about all the contributions that women like Alma Davis have made to defending our country, and they shouldn't be overlooked. She was absolutely a trailblazer, and, and we thank her for her service. And it was my privilege to, to cover that special event in other news, we covered an event in Quakertown, sort of an unhappy event. The Bush House was condemned. If you're familiar with the Quakertown area, the Bush House is a landmark. At one time, it was a true hotel. Today, it's essentially a rooming house in downtown Quakertown for lower-income residents, and quite a few of them call it home. The borough of Quakertown took the rather extreme action, especially in these times, to condemn the building due to what they allege are multiple serious code violations, including 
fire safety violations. They allege that there are extensive infestations of insects inside the building and that fire damage that occurred in April 2018 as a result of a fire that actually killed an elderly resident has not been properly remediated. The owner of this building, Thomas Skiffington, who is a Percocy real estate broker, refutes the allegations. He did so in a Channel 69 News report. That will, of course, all be settled by the courts eventually. However, uh, in the meantime, more than 60 residents of that building are homeless. And I should point out that not only is winter coming, COVID-19 is still a threat. So the borough has set up liaisons, I believe, to help these people find uh, at least temporary short-term housing. They also set up a PayPal fundraiser account that you can use to contribute to to help these people find housing. The link to that is in our story. It's a sad situation all around, and certainly we hope that people will contribute in these times, especially with the holidays coming. I hope people will be generous. Lastly, in local business news, we have a story from Andrew Isaacson about a new South Bethlehem business. This is called Five Maidens Cider Company, and they are located on Polk Street between 3rd and 4th Streets in the South Side. They actually opened in early August, around the time of Music Fest. They're having a grand opening celebration coming up on November 17th. I believe that will include a ribbon cutting. Of course, it'll be an opportunity to taste their great ciders. There aren't too many craft cideries around, so this is something fairly new for the area. I thought it was interesting that they stressed that their ciders aren't necessarily sweet. So if you're thinking, oh, it's going to be a sweet, fizzy you know, beverage, cider can be very dry. I've even had ciders that taste like IPAs. They're sort of infused with that hoppy flavor. So if you're not a fan of sweet alcoholic drinks, and I'm not, you might want to give them another chance. Of course, cider is also popular with individuals who have celiac disease or gluten intolerance. That's one of the reasons they began their business, because they had a family member who has celiac disease. So check them out, Five Maidens Cider Company, located at 327 Polk Street. You'll find the links to their website and Instagram and Facebook pages in our story. They also host live music on a regular basis and special events. And like I said earlier, we're looking forward to covering more business news in South Bethlehem. Our focus is going to be specifically on business, development, arts, culture, and events, which there's a lot of here, obviously. So we're planning on covering the holiday events in the area, which include Chris Kendall Mark, which is opening very soon. We'll have a story about that. But we want to hear what what you're interested in learning more about. So feel free to reach out to us at josh at sawkinsource.com. Again, that's the roundup for November 12th, 2021. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great week. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. 
Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. This week on No Rain Date, we are thinking about our friends who walk on four legs and the humans who help these incredible animals help other people. And we're going to be talking with Shannon Rager, who is the Senior Area Coordinator here in the Lehigh Valley for The Seeing Eye. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. We first met a couple years ago when I did a story about the seeing eye and local families who are foster families yes. for, for the dogs that are being trained. And we had about eight, maybe, dogs here in my eight office. Eight or nine dogs here in the office. Yeah, there was a lot of tail wagging and... <laughs> and uh, that was that was a fun time. I don't think I'll ever forget that <laughs> that interview. And I learned a lot about the program then and especially like what a big commitment is involved. And I want to discuss that with you in a little bit, but first I kind of want to just talk about the history of the program. I mean, people seeing eye dog is sort of like a household, you know, catch-all phrase yes. for any type of helper dog. But it's actually a very specific organization and program, right? Correct. So the Seeing Eye is the Seeing Eye Inc. in Morristown, New Jersey, and we are the first guide dog school in the mm -hmm. world. So when people say guide dog, Seeing Eye, guide dog is kind of the generic term. Seeing Eye Dog is our official term for our dogs who are out working with their match to be the eyes for someone who can't see. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, so the Seeing Eye was sort of, and this goes back to like the 1920s. That 1929. must have been pretty like revolutionary at that time. It was. So it actually started just a kind of a brief history in 1927. Morris Frank, who was a man living in the United States, he had lost his vision. His dad had read an article to him called The Seeing Eye. And it was written by Dorothy Eustace, who is an American who was living in Switzerland at the time. And she was training police dogs for blind people. Hmm. So her article came to the United States. He read it. He reached out to her and said, really interested. Could I come and work with you? 
She agreed, so he went over in 1928 and came back with his first guide dog in 1928. And in 1929, he opened the Seeing Eye. They ended up moving to Morristown, New Jersey in 1931 because of the climate. Sorry, it's Tennessee. Um, So they they moved to Morristown, New Jersey in 1931 just because of the climate. But really, when he came back and brought Dorothy back, that was really the start of the guide dog Mm -hmm. movement. And from that sort of humble beginning, like this whole, you know, international organization developed. Yes. And I'm sure over the past 90 plus years, tens of thousands of lives have been changed for the better. Yes. Yes. So since since the seeing I started over, I want to say about 17,000 matches have been. Wow. And make probably closer to 18,000 at this point. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how did you become involved? You obviously must be a dog lover. I am a dog lover. <laughs> so, my journey is kind of unique. I was a teacher. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. We moved out here. My husband moved out here. I was a teacher in special ed. And I said to my husband, I'd really love to get involved in an organization that, you know, helps any type of person with a disability and raise a dog for them and he said he was on board so we ended up first raising for the seeing eye Mm -hmm. and the woman who was my position about three years into us raising she had said you know I'm retiring if anybody's interested nice to my husband I love teaching I love animals I'd love to try and go for this job and I said you know I don't know if I'd get it but it's something that I feel very passionate about just because my predecessor did a really great job of combining both of those aspects, the teaching aspect and the dog aspect. And I, and I, it was a nice way to incorporate. So when I got the job, I said to my husband, all right, I, this is an opportunity that is once in a lifetime. I can't pass it up. And I've been with the seeing eye. This is my fifth year. I just celebrated oh, wow. five years and I love it. And it really does kind of combine the best of both worlds, playing with people or playing with puppies <laughs> and playing with people. I mean, I get to do all kind of fun stuff with people, but the families that I work with are very open to instruction and things like that. So it really kind of is the best of both worlds. Right. Well, and it does make sense that you have a background in education mm-hmm. because I'm sure that comes in handy. Yes. Doing what you do. Yes. What are your your responsibilities, like your, your duties as, as a coordinator? So my job, it, it's very broad and it varies. My job is really to work with the families and the dogs to make sure that they are as ready as they can be for when it's time for them to go back to campus. So I essentially deliver a seven week old puppy to someone and then I really follow that dog up until they're about 16 months. COVID has kind of changed that a little bit. The dogs are staying out a little bit longer, but typically families have dogs from seven weeks until about 16 months. And my job is to go to different outings that the families are at, do home visits if families are having issues with the dog, work, work on basic training, work on basic behavior when they're out and about in the community, just making sure that they are as solid as they can be for when it's time for their formal training. Our families do a lot of the hard work. They're housebreaking puppies. They're teaching them not to jump on furniture, not to bark, not to steal food basic commands that we have very specific basic commands that we want the dogs to know and teaching the dogs to be appropriate out in public which means if they go to a restaurant a dog has to lay under that table for up to two hours while they're there and not 
look for food, not leave under the seat, not look to be greeted by anybody. So it is a big undertaking. And that's kind of my role is to help support those families and any issues that they might have. Mm-hmm. So let's sort of start going through the process step by step. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that begins with a puppy being born. Yes. And it has to be a certain breed of dog, right? Yes. We have four breeds. So we are famously known for our German Shepherds. Buddy was the very first guide dog. Mm-hmm. Buddy was a German Shepherd. We also have Lab Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and then we cross our Labs and our Goldens. So we have Lab Golden Crosses. So those are our four breeds that we have. And we have our own breeding facility up in Chester, New Jersey, mm-hmm. where our dogs, when they're out with us they are not spayed or neutered because we pick from our own genetic pool our dogs in order to work have to have the best health the best qualities out there so we pick from our own pool we also bring in outside lines to make sure our lines are clean and we have a full-time geneticist Hmm. that is on staff that does those matings to make sure that our lines are clean we can bring in outside lines we have good genetics going through so that is a full-time job for our geneticist is just kind of making sure that we are breeding the best and healthiest dogs. Right, because obviously with the amount of time and money invested in these dogs, you want them to live as long as possible. Yes. And I read an article not that long ago that the Goldens were not living as long as they used to because of poor breeding practices. Maybe that was just one factor, but... And I think that's that's something we definitely take into consideration when our dogs go back and we do look at them for breeding. All of our dogs get a full genetic testing Mm -hmm. done but our our dogs that are selected for breeders have very extensive testing done to make sure that they don't have any genetic abnormalities or any heritable traits that can be passed down Mm -hmm. so as far as the well once the puppies are a certain age then Mm -hmm. they go to one of the families and you obviously want to have families that continue to be part of the program because there are quite a few requirements that yes. go along with it. So our puppies come out at seven weeks of age and they are delivered to the families typically at seven weeks, maybe a day or two after seven weeks. In our families, before they even get a puppy, they have to attend our club meetings, which most of them around here are once a month, or there's options. If you can't attend the regular meetings, some have special meetings that you can attend just to learn the basics. I do a home visit and I always tell families I'm not Coming to do a home visit to look to see what your house looks like or, you know, what, where you live. It's more for me to say, hey, think about these cords on the ground. Mm-hmm. A puppy can chew that and that's, that's a hazard. So I always come and do just a safety check. And then I really go over the basics of, I typically bring a puppy and say, this is what a puppy is going to get into in your house. This, these are things that you need to think about. Where are we going to feed the puppy? Where, where are you going to take the puppy to go to the bathroom? Where are you going to put a crate? So that's my initial visit with families once they start coming to club meetings and they have decided that this is a program that they want to do then they puppy sit so someone will offer up a puppy for a couple of days to say hey check it out see how it's going and then if they're really committed then they get on the list for a puppy a lot of our families like you'd mentioned are returning families it's funny because all of the communities it started out as a 4-h program and so it was really geared towards kids the program was mm-hmm. geared towards kids And a lot of families will say, my children started me in this program, and now those families have grandchildren, but they're Mm -hmm. still raising because they love the mission. They love seeing what these dogs can become, and they love seeing 
how it can impact somebody else's life to give them that freedom. Right, right. And these obviously have to be people who are emotionally, what is the word? Everybody becomes attached when you have an animal in your house. Thousand percent. <laughs> Thousand percent. I, mean, I know this because I just, you know, attempted to foster a kitten and like after a few weeks, like she was You're no a longer a foster. <laughs> and, you know, so, and that only took a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a much longer period of time. It is. And, and so I guess they have to sort of like, keep their eye on that goal of helping somebody else it is and you know I always say to families it's it is one of the hardest things to do to give an animal up everybody goes into the program whether it be a first time or I just placed a puppy with a family that has raised 23 dogs the day that I pick the dog up it never changes from the first time to the last time there is always that that sadness because the dogs do become a part of your life Mm mm-hmm I think what helps is knowing that they're going up to a facility where they are a thousand percent cared for and loved for and the trainers, the kennel staff, the directors, the instructors, everyone up there really quickly falls in love with these dogs and treats them like they're their own. But knowing and seeing some of the stories when our dogs are matched with a graduate, the families get a picture and a letter of kind of the basic overview. We keep anonymity because we don't want to violate anyone's privacy, but they get to know my dog is working with a younger man in California mm-hmm. who has two kids. And that's some closure for that family to say, okay, I've done my job. I've made right. somebody's life much better. But the day that I pick that dog up for trading is, it will always be one of the hardest days for those families. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're asking when I'm going to bring another dog to. So, you know. <laughs> right. Definitely mixed emotions at yes. that point. Yes. Well, I know at the end of the process, like the dog has to pass like a pretty rigorous test. Mm-hmm. And I forget exactly what that's called. So they do. So our dogs are up on campus for a minimum of four months. During that time, they learn everything from working in harness to traffic checks, which is where Our instructors will be working the dog, someone will drive a car up, and the instructor will tell the dog to go forward, and the dog has to make the decision whether it's going to go into the traffic or it's not. And by that point, the dog has learned, I'm not going to go in because it's not safe for me. So once the dog has mastered that, then we do what's called a town walk, and that is when the family gets to go up and see everything that that dog has done. And they get to talk to the instructor, which is another piece, another nice piece for our families. They get to actually see who that dog has been with for the last four months. Right. At that point, they'll say, your dog is ready to be matched with a blind person, or maybe they need a little bit more time because they're not as sound in loud noises, or they need a little bit more work. If a dog is class ready, that means it is ready for its perfect match. If it needs a little bit more time, it will be assigned to another instructor. They'll work with it a little bit more until hopefully it is ready to be assigned Hmm. matched up. Do they learn, you mentioned like staying still for, you know, a couple hours in a restaurant, even like longer periods of time, like, like say like they have to travel on an airplane or something like that. Absolutely. They learn that those skills too. Absolutely. At the seeing eye, there are actually airline seats that the trainers work with the dogs. They teach them how to get under the back of an airline seat so the dogs have to fit and lay there. Our families do a very good job at home trying to mimic as many real life situations as they can. So at club meetings, at typical club meetings, 
we practice getting in and out of a car because that's that is an actual skill the blind person has to start to get in the car the dog gets in and then the blind person swings their leg around to finish getting the car and then they close the door you know mimicking being on an airplane so we put smaller spaces so the dog will go under there and in in our club meetings and that's where really we get to see how the dogs are doing and work with the dogs we'll put them in a rest for five minutes and make them stay and if they're not comfortable we do different things to work with them doing that so our families play a very, very important part in thinking outside of the box and thinking about situations where dogs would have to just be able to to lay for a couple hours. I know we had one grad and he traveled to Japan quite a lot with his dog. And one of the things that his dog had to do because it was a long flight is learn, learn to be there and just be okay for a long period of time. So those were, those are things that our families really try and work on to prepare the dogs for when they go back up to training, which is very helpful for the instructors as well. Mm -hmm. I would think that, I mean, you mentioned how this was originally sort of conceived as a program for kids. There are a lot of learning lessons for kids that go along with this. They have to be disciplined in order to train the dog. Yes. Which is, is something that, you know, is a great experience for kids. It is. Some of my my greatest experiences are kids who are not sure that they're one, they want to do it or even families that are not sure about dogs and they've come to the program and they've worked the dogs and after a few months they've decided, all right, I want to raise. And watching these kids who don't really talk much in the beginning, they're shining stars by the end because the working with the dog and seeing the success that they have had with the dog has completely transformed their personality. So it's one of the, and I think that's also the teacher in me, that I love watching, you know, a young person take on a full responsibility because it is a 24-hour-a-day commitment. And I always say to families, this is not like any other volunteer experience that your child is going to have because these dogs are living in your house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're your responsibility and your child really needs to be a part of that process and whether it be feeding them in the morning and feeding them at night, brushing them every day, giving them assigned tasks, it's not like volunteering somewhere else where you go, your job is done, and you come home. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wonderful to watch these kids really take charge and they take ownership of that dog. I mean, they walk into club meetings, they're proud, they're happy, they want to show you what they have been able to do with their dog, which is really kind of a cool thing. Right. Well, and I'm sure some families are just, the dynamics are better for for this type of activity than others because everybody has to be on the same page, yes. the same mindset. If it's a family where everybody is always arguing, you know, about, about how to do things, that's not going to work. Thousand percent. Every And I always say it's not, even when families contact me and say, my child wants to do this program, I said, wonderful, I'm happy. Everyone has to be on board. Um, It can't just be mom and daughter or dad and daughter. It has to be everybody because we do have very strict guidelines for our dogs. And if everybody's not on board, it makes it a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, one thing I'm curious about is, I mean, years ago, I feel like there weren't as many there just weren't as many animals out there like helping people in various ways and now you hear a lot about like emotional support animals and you see them you know you encounter them in in everyday life and i'm certainly 
they benefit people a lot, but but this is not the same thing. No, no. So any animal that is considered a working animal, it really is for someone who has a disability. So you know, if a dog is a working dog, for someone who is visually impaired, it's very easy to say your dog is a working dog. It's a dog in harness, whether it be from the seeing eye or guiding eyes for the blind you recognize a dog who is a service dog as far as a working dog for someone who is blind. For someone who is diabetic and they have, you know, a dog that is an alert dog, it's more difficult to see that disability because it's more of a hidden disability. So really when you're looking at service dogs, you, you're looking at a two-factor. Does the person have a diagnosable disability and does that dog perform a service? So something like diabetic alert dog, insulin alert dog, that person does have a disability, it's a, it's a physical disability, and yes, that dog is doing a service, it's alerting, same with like seizure dogs, things mm-hmm. like that. What becomes difficult is when it's an emotional support dog and there are people who need emotional support dogs, PTSD, mm-hmm. whether any, any kind of trauma, it makes it difficult when someone else who truly doesn't have, you know, the need for an emotional support dog, go out and buy a vest on Amazon and put it on that dog, and that dog isn't trained to behave a certain way in public. You know, true emotional support dogs and service dogs are trained to do a task, mm-hmm. and that is where, you know, people who are going on and just buying and saying, oh, my animal is a service animal, it makes it very difficult for people who truly have the need for a service animal. And people who truly do need an emotional support dog, it makes it much more difficult for them because they truly need that, that support, that guidance, the, you know, the companion there, but people don't, they kind of take advantage of that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like we need, you know, maybe I, maybe I can help with this, but we need more like PSAs or something that like sort of, help differentiate between because I see I also see people and this drives me crazy if they're if they go up without permission and just start touching a working or training yes. dog I mean that is so wrong yes. like you don't do that I my rule of thumb is and it's funny because my daughter is four and she will sometimes call me on it I always say you never touch a dog because you don't know if it's working or not you, right. just because a dog doesn't have a, a harness or a, an identifier on doesn't mean it's not working and I've gone up and said, oh, look at that puppy. And she'll say to me, you don't touch puppies, mom. You don't touch something. Of all people, right. I should follow that rule. But that's one of the things the Seeing Eye is really working on, too. We do have a really great program talking about working dogs and how to interact with even a guide dog team. But I do think getting the message out that you always ask beforehand. And, and if you do see a dog in a vest or a harness or something that has some kind of identifier on it, you just don't even look at it because people also don't understand saying, oh, that puppy's so cute, it really does distract the dog. So my mm-hmm. rule of thumb is if you see a dog that has any kind of identifier on it, you look at it, you keep walking, and then once you're you know, a good 100 yards past it, you can say, oh, that dog was so cute. I really right. wanted to pet like, it. Have some self-control, <laughs> yes. people. Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, and I guess, I, well, I mean, everybody's human and, and things happen. I guess, I guess if somebody does touch a dog or you try and turn it into a teachable moment yes. and, and raise awareness through that experience. And I think that's one of the really great things our puppy raisers do is, you know, we do allow our dogs to be pet 
unless it's six months they get a vest if they earn it you know they have to go through a little some testing to get a vest but our families are pretty good about if somebody approaches they'll either say you know he's in his vest he's learning that he cannot be approached or you may pet him but he needs to be in a sit and we need to take the vest off so the dog learns when it's appropriate and our families have been very good about using those teachable moments in the public which i think is another great benefit to having puppy raisers yeah no i would probably scare them i'd be like you know <laughs> the way this dog learns you know and reacts to situations could somebody's life could depend on that literally a thousand percent a thousand percent if if you have a guide dog team and somebody who's visually impaired and somebody goes up and distracts the dog that is putting the visually impaired person's life in danger right so and i'm still trying to figure out emotional support cats like how that works because I feel like I give I give my cats more emotional support than they give me. And they're just like running around and around and around. But yeah, that's another that's another show. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, in the in the two and a half years since we first met, COVID happened, which disrupted everything. And I'm curious to know how the seeing eye adapted. It's protocols mm -hmm. to keep everybody safe mm -hmm. so COVID for us was interesting because we did at any given point in time we have about 260 dogs on campus at the very start of the pandemic we didn't know much like the world didn't know what was going to happen so we actually asked all of our families who currently have dogs if they would foster one of the dogs from the kennel so some oh, of our okay. families actually took a dog back from the kennel to raise even if they never met the dog they stepped up and they took a dog back and that was for about three months during the summer when the dogs went back they started introductory training again because they'd been gone for a good three months they just wanted to refine some of those skills our typical class size has changed because of covid we used to serve up to 24 students per class class is we have about 11 or 12 to 13 classes a year and they consist of retrains which are people who have already had a guide dog and they're coming back for another one or new grads so the retrains are there for about 18 days the new grads are there for about 25 days they live on campus at the seeing eye because of covid we have cut our number of class size in half to about 12 to 14 people and that has been since last year so we are serving less people at our facility, but we have also been able to have the flexibility to go out to more people. So our instructors are now traveling with dogs to grads at their home. So if they cannot come because they can't get vaccinated or they can't get on an airplane or any of those COVID factors right now, we do have instructors that are taking guide dogs to grads, which we've always done, but we've always really encouraged the grads to come live on campus because it's, it's 18 day, very immersive. They live on campus. They get all their meals there. So as far as how many graduates we're putting out, that has decreased. Hopefully as things kind of stabilize, we get back to normal, whatever mm -hmm. the new normal is, we will increase that. As far as dogs, what the seeing eye did was they were very fiscally responsible. They stopped our breeding program because what we didn't want to have was too many dogs. The dogs that we had that were older are the dogs that we wanted because they're the ones who know the most they were going to be the ones that were the most ready so we didn't breed as many dogs during the pandemic but the dogs that we did have come out we had about two we typically have about 500 dogs that we breed every year we had about 260 that we bred last year due to covid so 
COVID also kind of changed the nature of what our families could do because our families are very used to taking their dogs into public at least three to five times a week, if not every day. A lot of our graduates took their dogs to work. Or not mm-hmm. graduates, our raisers took their dogs to work. And right. they weren't going to work. They right. weren't going to stores. So it was challenging in the beginning to figure out how do I expose my dog to going to someplace like Walmart when no one was going to Walmart or teaching a dog, okay, I'm at work. You have to sit under a desk in a work office. So our families got very creative. The other area coordinators, we all kind of came together with some different activities that you could do, but families made makeshift workspaces where their dogs, they put their dog's vest on and left the house, came back in the house and pretended like they were going to work. So the dogs thought, okay, I'm going to work. We had people set up clothes racks in their house. Oh, that's cool. And they would take the dog outside, put the vest on, come back in, and they would make them sit as they were, like, thumbing through their clothes. I said, you know, one of the activities, somebody said, you know, I always went to Walmart. I said, get your pantry stuff out. Put it out and just shop around your house and pretend. So our families had to get very creative, which I think helped in turn because, you know, especially during the winter a lot of the families like i don't want to go out it's snowing but now we kind of have this toolkit that we can say you don't have to you it's very beneficial to go out because there's the distractions the sights the sounds the people but they can do a lot of that basic training how to behave sit rest down things like that in their home so our families have really adapted I know a lot of us were worried what the dogs would do when they would go back because they didn't have as much exposure to the community and our Mm -hmm. trainer said they were some of the best behaved dogs because they got that extra reinforcement on house manners in the homes. So they're really doing well up there. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. As far as the actual training, I mean, I, I see there's something on your website about social distancing and guide yes. dogs. Yes. And, yes. you know, guide dogs don't understand that concept. No. <laughs> no. Guide dogs do not understand the concept of social distancing and if you think about it, a person could have some sight to get one of our guide dogs, but mm-hmm. a person who is is completely visually impaired, has no sight, they don't know where someone is. So it's really the person who's sighted responsibility to say, there's a working dog team, I need to be the one who socially distances. And that would go for any kind of support animal. It's crucial for for our graduates because they may not be able to see you and the dogs aren't we can't teach a dog to social distance that's something that is not going to happen so but really for any working team it's really the the other person's responsibility to socially distance right right now i've always wondered about this what what happens towards and this is sort of a sadder topic but sort towards the end of the guide dog's life I mean, they're, they're maybe getting slower. Mm-hmm. They're not as agile. Yes. And that person is dependent on them. So they can't just, you know, go for a while without Correct. a fully, you know, Correct. Uh, capable dog. The graduate really has to start to recognize when the dog is slowing down. And usually our graduates are very intuitive about that. And they will contact the seeing eye and say, I might have about a year or two left with okay. my dog. 
I'd like to get on the list for another dog. Mm -hmm. For people who are retrains, the instructors know them fairly well. They know what to look for for a match for that dog, whether the dog needs to be faster and have a faster pull because the person just walks quickly or the person might walk a little slower so they need a slower dog. Whether a dog can work in the city versus the country, these are all things that they have to take into account when finding that perfect match. So the grads are really intuitive about saying, I'm noticing it's time that we slow down. Once a dog is done working, the graduate can choose to keep the dog as a pet, but sometimes they give them to family members because they've been with them for so long, It's Mm -hmm. They're part of their family. Right. If the graduate is not able to take care of the dog, either physically or financially, it comes back to the seeing eye. And then we offer it back to the puppy raiser at no cost that raised it. And I just had that happen. And the dog had been gone for nine years. And I called the family and said, I don't know if you remember this dog. They said, oh my gosh, we love that dog. I said, well, she's retired. If you want her, we'll go up tomorrow and get her. I said, that's (laughs) perfect. And if the family's just not in a place where they can adopt the dog, we do have a very extensive waiting list for people who want to adopt one of our dogs. I'm sure, yeah. Because these dogs are so well behaved and and loving and and genetically they're the cream of the crop and they're adopting any one of these dogs is going to make somebody's life better no matter if it's just going to be a pet these dogs are amazing dogs so yeah that's really cool i know recently right here in saucon valley some of the families participated in an event at Lower Saucon Fire Rescue. Yes. What was that all about? It was a really great collaboration, and we were very thankful to the fire company for doing that collaboration with us. A lot of times, we don't think about exposing the dogs to things like a fire truck up directly, or a hose, or even seeing someone in gear. And we were very lucky that the fire company partnered with us so that it, we could expose the dogs to the sirens, the loud noise. They gave us a presentation with their gear on what would happen in a fire. And the dogs just kind of stood there and they took it all in in stride and they were they were excellent. But it was a nice opportunity to also kind of reciprocate the education to say, hey, if there is a guide dog in the house, this is something that you want to look for. Or if there's any type of service animal in the house. We did have one of our graduates come and she kind of spoke to them as well. She does a lot of community outreach. Events like that where we can partner with the community and they're willing to hear us talk and they can give us information about their services, it really helps to make a more well-rounded dog. And we are always looking for opportunities to do that. I know when Sagra was here, we mm. had Robin was so generous to open up the top floor of the restaurant and we had 30 dogs up there oh, all wow. dining together. So opportunities like that, whereas they don't seem like a major event or you know something, it's, it's a huge event for our dogs and it's really great exposure because we want to give them as many exposure opportunities as possible and to think outside the box and and that's really what the fire company did for us right right yeah well that was a great collaboration for sure so say i'm i'm just thinking about our listeners you know i'm listening to everything that you said and you know this sounds like something that you know is appealing to me and my family Mm -hmm. how would i approach you about possibly 
becoming a foster or, or a puppy sitter. A puppy sitter, yes. Right. So anybody who's interested, they can go to the seeingeye.org and then they would go under puppies and dogs and there's some information there. My contact information is on there as well. They can reach out to me. Really, once I once they reach out, I kind of explain the program. I explain that it really is. And again, because of COVID, we're keeping the dogs out a little bit longer. But it's a, from seven weeks until about 16 months of age. And, you know, I explain what the commitment is. I explain there's club meetings once a month and kind of talk them through that process. And I always explain to families, we have two kind of avenues. If you want to raise a puppy, that's great. It's that full-time commitment. If you love animals, you want to have some some kind of involvement in the organization, you can attend meetings, but you don't think you're ready for that full-blown 24-hour day, seven-day commitment. We have puppy sitters and some of those people are my gems because we don't have enough puppy sitters. And what puppy sitters do is they come to the meetings, they work the dogs, any events or outings that we have, they can come. If someone can't bring a dog, they can bring a dog. So if I had a dog and I said, I couldn't attend this event, my puppy sitters say, oh, I can pick the dog up and I'll take them. If somebody's going out of town, they can watch the dog for maybe four to five days. And I really encourage people if they're interested and they're just not ready for that full commitment, it's a great way to get your foot in and see if it's for you. In fact, that's how my husband and I started. We puppy sat for a year. Mm-hmm. And after a year, I said, okay, I'm ready. I feel good about it. And even when we don't have dogs, we don't currently have a puppy right now. We puppy sit constantly just to kind of keep involved and keep active. But it is one of those things that I, I think people see raise a puppy and they don't think there's other opportunities. And mm-hmm. so I always like to say there are multiple opportunities to volunteer with our organization. It's just kind of finding which is the best fit for your family. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. I love that you have options mm-hmm. for people. Because it is, you know, if you are doing the full foster, it, it, I mean, it's twenty four seven. It is. And things happen, you know, too. So it's it's good that they have help when they yes. need it. Yes. Well, your website, as you said, is seeingeye.org. Yes. And there's a lot of information on it. You have a blog. You have, of course, links to your social media. Yes. You have a way to people can donate. Yes. You know, maybe they they aren't in a position to actually physically you know help with a dog but they still want to support your mission and and that is you know something our graduates i always say our dogs are the cost of a a very nice car from start to finish (laughs) our dogs cost about seventy five thousand dollars that's what a dog costs from birth until putting it out with their grad and we are a nonprofit. the graduates from the time that the seeing I started has always been $150. Our graduates pay no more than $150. They do retain ownership of the dog. A returning graduate only pays $50 for their next dog. And anyone who is a veteran only pays a dollar for the dog. Wow. So that cost, $150, includes their travel to the seeing eye, their 18 or 25 days staying on campus, all of their meals, all of their transportation back and forth, and the dog, and all of the courses that we provide to them while they're on campus. So any donations that anybody could support with us, we truly see as a gift because the money is going to not only the dogs, but it's going to help the graduates as well. We don't turn any graduate away because they may not be able to pay the $150 up front. If they say, I can pay a dollar a month, for 150 mm-hmm. months, 
they come. We don't turn any way, anyone away because they couldn't afford the fee. So yes, donations are always, if you're looking for something to do for the holidays and support a great cause, truly the Seeing Eye is one of the best causes out there. And one other thing I, I wanted to ask too, you match dogs with people all over the U.S., yes. right? But you, but the training takes place only pretty close to Morristown? It is in Morristown, yes. So the, it, the families have to be close to there too? So our families are Pennsylvania, so the territories around here are Northampton, Luzerne, Upper Bucks, Lower Bucks, Berks, Montgomery, Lehigh. Those are my territories. Okay. There are some out in central PA. We have a few in Delaware, a lot in New Jersey because we're based out of New right. Jersey and one or two up in New York. So okay. we have coordinators that span about four hours away from Morristown. The formal training all takes place in Morristown. So if anyone is ever up in Morristown and you decide to sit outside on a nice sunny day you will see the guide dogs working with their instructors and if you're lucky enough you'll get to see a grad with a dog too oh that's a nice benefit for Morris. it is it is it's great to go up and watch the dogs working and see how happy they are doing what they're doing yeah well i thank you so much for joining us shannon and for all the work you're doing and for all the work the seeing eye is doing it really is amazing and and i know that that there's stories you can find online too about individuals that have benefited absolutely and i appreciate you having me here we're always looking for families again whether it be puppy sitters or puppy raisers and you can also find more about us on social media on facebook and on instagram and twitter yes so we you know if you're ever looking and we have a lot of great stories about the graduates on our facebook page as well and their matches and what they're doing right yeah learn learn about the seeing eye dog and what's behind that that phrase because yes. it, there really is a lot of meaning there yes. and they're just amazing animals to be able to do what they do they can do things that we can't do it's the truth <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again and we hope that our listeners will support seeing eye in in various ways We've been recording No Rain Dates since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.